Pistachio Land advertises itself as the nuttiest place in New Mexico. Its billboards touting the world's largest pistachio litter the state, and I was crestfallen to discover that a visit there would require a four-hour detour south of 66. I needn't have despaired, though, as the Mother Road has no shortage of roadside oddities. And today we'll visit a few that are great for a stretch, nap, and chuckle. But they were also built by people with hopes and dreams, and as you'll hear, I think they offer a little more than what meets the eyes. I'm Evan Stern, and this is Vanishing Postcards. So before we get started, friends, if you like Vanishing Postcards, I want to tell you about another one of my favorite podcasts, Gravy. A production of the Southern Foodways Alliance, Gravy tells stories about the changing American South. Indulge in the bitter and sweet of Kraft chocolate, Florida orange juice mythology, and Cuban sandwich controversies. The latest batch of gravy is about a mystical spot in the mountains of North Carolina where a string of bakers have found comfort and transformation around a wood-fired hearth. Listen to gravy wherever you get your podcasts. And now, let's get back to Route 66. Most roadies, myself included, We'll tell you that a drive down 66 is best enjoyed at an unhurried pace. Even then, I admittedly came close to missing Foyle, Oklahoma. Perched about 10 miles north of Will Rogers' hometown of Claremore, this country hamlet's favorite son remains Andy Payne, whose bronze likeness is forever etched here in shorts and a sprinter's pose. A Cherokee youth he bought his family's farm with the first prize winnings he took home after running 1928's epic 3,400-mile Bunyan Derby. But Mr. Payne was by no means the only man of distinction to hail from here. And if you turn off and head a little ways past Annie's Diner, you'll see this handsome statue is by no means Foyle's most impressive monument. Ninety feet tall, 18 feet wide. The base is 54 feet around and it and uh, a sign inside says it's made from 100 tons of sand and rock 28 tons of cement and six tons of steel and 200 different carved pictures with four nine-foot indian chiefs near the top that's john woolley a goateed award-winning writer journalist and radio host he's called rogers county home since the 50s the structure he's standing before and describing is the towering centerpiece of ed galloway's totem pole park which, having written a book on, is a place he knows pretty well. The, 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 the big totem pole, which is called the world's largest man-made totem pole. I always tell people that's as opposed to the world's largest naturally occurring totem pole, but what they mean is it's, a, it's the largest concrete totem pole. In taking in this composition, which sits atop the back of an oversized googly-eyed blue turtle, I can't say its rounded edges and narrowing spine remind me of any totems I've seen. Some descriptions I've read liken it to being more akin to a totem pole rocket ship, but the work's artfulness is indisputable. Its sides are adorned from top to bottom with carvings of lizards, penguins, lobsters, and fish. Portraits of Indians and in headdresses sit alongside sculpted eagles with protruding noses, while one indistinguishable figure even as a foot-long cigarette jetting from his mouth. Most striking of all are the colors whose vibrancy lulls you into forgetting you're gazing at something fashioned out of cement. 
All in all, it's an impressive sight made all the more remarkable when learning of Ed Galloway himself. In rural Oklahoma, in this part of the country, you had to amuse yourself, right? So you learned, you found things to do. You you were couldn't you know, you didn't have a lot of access to other entertainment. So you made your own entertainment, and and he was definitely one of those guys. He didn't have any Indian blood whatsoever. He just basically did this because he wanted to. He was apparently one of those artists who had to do things. What we do know is that he worked as a, a mechanics arts teacher uh, at a an orphanage in Sand Springs, and he would start doing. He started doing carvings and things like that then for people. And so he, has, he was doing this for a long time before he started in on Totem Pole Park. Complete one-man operation. There were people who would help him a little bit, but he, it was all him. Uh, there are stories about him taking a wheelbarrow and going clear way, way down here to the river, getting a wheelbarrow full of sand, walking back up here with a wheelbarrow full of sand, mixing his concrete, and going in there and, and doing the doing the uh, the uh, totem pole. I talked to people who were kids at the time and riding the school bus to school, and they would ride by here, and every day it would just be up a little bit. He might get a foot and a half a year or something, two feet a year. Born in 1880, Mr. Galloway began building the totem pole in his yard as a retirement project in 1937. It took him 11 years to complete, after which he proceeded to build a Hogan, smaller statues, and whimsical picnic tables, all fashioned out of similarly molded painted concrete. As far as it's known, he never stopped planning additions for the park until his death in 1962. Yet, his vision was never commercial, which is something John can attest to from personal experience. This is a place I grew up around now. Um, Mr. Galloway was still alive when I was a kid in Chelsea. And my mother would bring my brother and me out and on uh, Sundays, and a lot of people would do that. They'd eat their lunches over here uh, on these concrete tables, and Mr. Galloway would be sitting inside that Hogan, and he would be talking about what his things he did, the carvings he did, the, the concrete work that he did. He never asked for money. He'd sit there at the table, and if you want to come in and talk to him and ask him about stuff, he was more than happy to tell you. But... Uh, he never, he, I remember he had a big jar when I was a kid in front and it would say, you know, uh, for uh, something like electricity fund or for, for the electricity to keep this going. And, uh, that's all. He never asked anybody for any money. It was always free. My sons, I have two sons that are in their thirties now, and we used to come out here, my wife and my two sons, but we'd drive by and every time we drove by, it became a deal where I would have to talk to them and the different voices of the of the images that Mr. Galloway had up there, so I'd have to talk like a turtle and talk. And we did that for years, absolutely years. And it was just, that was just one of the things that was, you know, that was one of the, one of the, uh, attra- it was just one of the attractions around here that we sort of took for granted. For years, this place was taken for granted. The paint faded and was often covered in graffiti. The Hogan was broken into where many of Galloway's hand-carved fiddles were stolen or vandalized. And the grounds were frequently strewn with litter and broken bottles. After Mr. Galloway died, uh, it fell into terrible disrepair. Uh, everything was in bad shape. And I, at the time, I was, I was trying to break into freelance writing, and I was doing a little bit, I was always looking for more. And a friend of mine who was an editor at the Tulsa World said, well, you know, they're always looking for stories in their Sunday supplement. I said, well, I could write about the totem pole and the disrepair that it's in and all of this. So I wrote a story, and there was a woman, Mrs. Holman, 
and there was, you see right over the fence there, there that used to be a little store. The story gets, it gets accepted. One Sunday, it comes out. One, that morning, that Sunday morning, I have the paper, and I drive down here, and I turn this corner, and there are cars lined up and down this road. And there are people walking around this, which was in terrible, it's in beautiful shape now, it was in terrible shape, and taking pictures of each other and everything. I drive up to the store, and Mrs. Holman is just, I mean, she's just, she's got pop, pop, and she's selling stuff, and she's just going. I tell her, well, Mrs. Holman, I said, the story's out uh, in Oklahoma, OK Magazine. But I said, I guess you know that. She says, this is like 1955. That was when I, this, that's when I learned, and that's what this place taught me, was the power of the written word. The park was added to the National Register of Historic Places in 1999, has since been beautifully restored, and Joan tells me it's probably in better shape than it was even when Mr. Galloway was alive. John says when he comes here, he gets something of a mystical feeling. For me, though, surrounded by sculptures of owls with comically sad faces, I feel a sense of lightness and humor. I mean, seriously, what is this place doing here at all? But no matter the reason, it's brought me out today with John, who will tell you this quiet corner of Oklahoma and our world as a whole are better with places like this in it. But it's kind of a, it's this, this is a kind of spiritual place. You see that there was a real um, joy and a real passion involved in all of it. And I think we need to remind ourselves of that, especially in an era, and again, I know this is cliched too, and I know I'm an old guy that, uh, that talks about this, but, but when there's all this instant gratification, you start looking at what somebody can do that puts in years of work. Mr. Galloway put in years of work and years of work creating this. And it's, I just think that's, I think that's pretty important to, for people to understand that um, you can do something like this and influence generations. And it's something very positive. There's nothing negative about it. This is a very positive thing. And it's, it's uh, you know, you come out here on a day like this, a beautiful Indian summer day like this, and you can't help but be impressed and moved. Another Oklahoman whose hard labor has impacted generations was zookeeper Hugh Davis, who, like Galloway, discovered a fondness for concrete and set about building a massive project of his own. How big is the whale? Can you paint a visual of like how it looks and fits into the everything around here? Oh my gosh. It is very curvy whale. It is 80 foot long, 20 foot tall on the head. And I think it's 18 foot or maybe the head's a little taller than 20, but I know that live sperm whales in maturity are between 70 and 90 feet. So Hugh went middle, it's 80, it's real size. That's Linda Hobbs. And the huge sperm whale she's describing is, of course, the blue whale of Catoosa. One of the most iconic sights along the route, this winking, gentle giant with a permanent smile rises above a murky pond where kids once jumped cannonballs from its tail. It's been a long time since that or swimming of any kind was allowed, but that's what drew Linda here as a young mother in the 70s. And years later, she doesn't hesitate to tell me her favorite places are the beach, the mountains, and the whale. But so this really is one of your favorite places on earth right it here. It is. It totally is. It is like uh, the most peaceful place, one of the most peaceful places. People love this whale just as much as I do. 
I tease people I should have fallen in love with a real person instead of a stick in the mud well. <laughs> That's my running joke now. To be clear, Linda has had a lot of love in her life. An Irish Cherokee with long, dark hair and a finely boned face with piercing blue eyes, she grew up on a vegetable farm outside Chicota and worked for years as a seamstress before picking up a pen to author children's books. We're talking inside the gift shop near the ground's entrance, a small wooden hut that has the feel of an old fisherman's shack. She volunteers here most days, sharing the story of Hugh and Zelta Davis, whom she proudly knew. What brought me here is my husband died in 11. Uh, and for about a year and a half, I was just kind of, uh. And then I remembered Hugh Davis and his wife, Zelta. They were uh, good friends. Hugh was always making something. So I thought, I called in here and asked if this nonprofit that was running this place um, needed a volunteer. They did. And I'm not, I wasn't going to stay nine years. Don't ask I really honestly was not going to stay in any years. I don't know uh, how that happened, actually, except the first year, no one could tell me this man's name. He and, and I was so surprised. I couldn't believe it when they only stopped for a great photo. It was a great photo. And, and that's okay. It's a good reason to stop. But there was so much more to him and his wife. Following 34 years as the director of Tulsa Zoo, Hugh and his wife, Zelta, decided to turn their land into a park of their own called Nature's Acres. They raised alligators, built a reptile kingdom inside a model of Noah's Ark, and allowed people to picnic, fish, and bathe in their spring-fed lagoon. Then, Linda tells me that one night, he made a pronouncement. He went home one night, drew the whale on his dinner nap. He told his friends he was going to build a concrete one. They said... How are you going to do that? You've never really worked in concrete. Hugh Davis said, how hard can it be? He would just see things in his mind and know how to do it. He, that, he never used a blueprint. He made his own molds, or he would find something that would work. He just, the grandson says, he just, Papa just went out there and sat down and started working. When he finished it, and it took him two years sitting in a flat-bottom boat, scooping concrete out of five-gallon buckets. He looked at all these kids, and he said, um, I have given your grandmother the blue sperm whale, which is the biggest thing on earth. You can never ask me to build you anything bigger or better to jump off of. And 34th wedding anniversary present. She knew he was building it, she just didn't know it was going to. I mean, how could you hide that? Uh, she didn't know it was going to be hers. Hugh and Zelta ran the place with heart until age, arthritis, and slimming profits forced them to close at the end of their season in 88. Hugh died in 1990, and like Mr. Galloway's totem pole, the ensuing years weren't kind to the whale. But following Miss Davis's passing in 2001, their son Blaine, with the help of Katusa businesses and volunteers, reopened it, and it's now officially city-owned. I'm told the whale was just painted and has a new deck, but its grounds still feel like a living time capsule. This is what Linda tells me draws people here, and that her job is about far more than selling t-shirts. I've, I've, I've congratulated newlyweds. I've been the first to know that someone is having a baby. I, uh, but it is the people that need hugs and the world is not sweet enough today. It's not. Um, and, and you know, are there any stories that you can share about hugs that you have given uh, here? Uh, meaningful hugs? Meaningful hugs. 
uh, a gentleman came through not too long ago. I asked him, just like everyone, how are you doing? Where are you from? He said, I'm doing my, um, my, my list. And I said, okay. There's, every hug is meaningful. I, that's what everyone needs to understand. Every hug is meaningful. Some are, uh, but he looked at me and I said, so you're doing, you're going through pretty quick? He said, yeah. And uh, I said, you, I hear this all the time. You have the most amazing blue eyes I have ever seen in my whole life. I hear that a lot. And I never thought about it until somebody said it. Well, this gentleman had amazing, beautiful blue eyes. And I said, I have never seen eyes quite the color of yours. And um, he said, that's because I'm going blind. And um, in a month I'll be blind. And in six months I'll be dead. And I'm like, so I just wrapped him up in a big hug and uh, very thankful he stopped here. Um, but you hear those stories every day and you go home and you cry a lot. And that's what people really don't understand. You carry it home with you and you have to get out. I'm like you, Davis, in a lot of ways, I think. You have to get out in nature and you have to walk and, and just appreciate what God has given you. But that's been my life. Tears, laughter, happiness, joy. This this place has been such a blessing to me. I'm so glad I did it. And I, I don't know how it wound up being nine years. I really honestly don't. Just going to take a quick moment to tell you about a podcast called Strong Sense of Place that combines two of my favorite things, books and travel. Every two weeks, host Melissa and Dave get curious about one destination and discuss five great books that took them there on the page. They start with an overview of what makes that place different than anywhere else on Earth, then tackle a round of Two Truths and a Lie to explore quirky stories. The heart of the show is their book recommendations that explore why they love each title, and their reviews contain no spoilers because book spoilers are just rude. Each episode is a new bookish adventure. Take an imaginary trek through Iceland, sip Uzo in Athens, or virtually ride the rails on epic train adventures. Strong Sense of Place was recommended by Book Riot, and I'm proud to recommend it too, and encourage all my fellow wanderers and bibliophiles to listen to Strong Sense of Place on your favorite podcast app, or visit strongsenseofplace.com. And now, let's get back to Route 66. Drive a few hundred miles past the Blue Whale, and you'll eventually cross into the Texas Panhandle. Here, Michael Wallace says 66 got cut into pieces, like some harmless snake chopped up by a gardener's hoe. This, of course, happened to make way for I-40, which he likens to an endless airport runway. And a soulless rest stops are pretty much the only interruptions you'll see along this flat, mostly brown stretch of plains. It's hard to find fault in that description. But if you exit onto the shoulder, about half an hour before Amarillo, Next to an abandoned, overgrown motel whose sign claims a rusted 66 emblem, you'll be rewarded by a snap of color in the form of a small graffitied billboard decorated with two large and noticeable flags. Well, the, that one's the LBJ, oh, I can't even it, the gay and lesbian flag. Then you have the uh, weed flag, you know, people like that's their business. That's what they want to do. They want to smoke. People like it. So. Uh, nobody sells them in Amarillo. And I started selling them 
I'm about trying to make a make a living. If that's if it'll sell, I'm gonna put it out there and sell it. They sell. Uh, and uh, do you uh, do, do LGBT do are LGBT rights important to you? Well, yes, yes they are because they're human and they have rights just like anybody else does. Well, that's good. And have have you ever had any um, you know grief um, from people passing? No, sir. No? no, sir. Never. Nobody's ever said anything. Nobody has ever complained. Matter of fact, it really surprising. I've had many, many tips put in the jar, and I thank you for supporting the flag. That's that's very generous of people. That's Steve. I didn't get his last name. A bald construction worker who set down his tools following some illness. He's a little taller than me and by my estimates is somewhere around 250 pounds. We're chatting outside the purple trailer he set up a few months ago to sell spray paint, t-shirts, and sodas to anyone tempted to stop by. The draw here, of course, are the five skeleton VW bugs jutting out of the ground a few feet away. They call this place the Slug Bug Ranch, and Steve tells me a little about why it's here. Well, they used to have, the, like I say, the gas station and the rattlesnake shop and uh, uh, trading post. And business was slow, everybody had moved out. So they were trying to increase business, put the slug bugs out here, and it didn't, it just didn't go over good. But so the, uh, so the rattlesnake, what was the rattlesnake uh, place? It was a rattlesnake farm. They raised rattlesnakes, so there. <laughs> I never knew that people actually raised rattlesnakes. Oh yeah, oh yeah. Yeah, when, uh, the old lady that died, that owned it, died. Her son come out and just opened the cages up and just let them go. So they say they're out here, but I've been I've been coming out here for over a year. You know, just kind of looking things over and watching it, the traffic wise. And I've been all through here, and I've never seen a rattlesnake yet. As far as I can tell, that was around 2003. And while the rattlesnakes and businesses have all left, the cars have remained covered with years worth of garish tags. A lot of excitement goes on out here. You know, it's a relaxation, really, kind of a therapy. A lot of times people consider it art therapy because uh, they come out here and they paint their, you know, their feelings out here on the walls and on the bugs. And we've got plenty to paint out here. This place wouldn't exist if not for Amarillo's larger and considerably more famous Cadillac Ranch, which local artist and self-described 80-year-old teenager Crocodile Lyle describes to me. Well, Cadillac Ranch is, is an installation of, of sculpture. It's nine, or 10 Cadillacs stuck in the ground just about three miles west of town, south side of I-40. And uh, Stanley Marsh III hired the ant farm out of San Francisco to build this, this thing. Uh, in 1972. It took them two years to make that. And then in the 90s, they picked it up and moved it where it to its present location. Over a million people a year spray paint graffiti on the cars. A bit of background. The Ant Farm was a collective founded in the late 60s by California artists Chip Lord and Doug Michaels. Its name was chosen to reflect their desire to create what they called underground architecture. And they described themselves as an art agency that promotes ideas that have no commercial potential but which we think are important vehicles of cultural introspection. As the story goes, one day member Hudson Marquez was flipping through a children's picture book about cars when he started thinking about creating a piece 
that would explore the rise and fall of the tail fin. After drawing up some plans, they began contacting eccentric millionaires, one of whom was Amarillo Stanley Marsh, who responded to their proposal with a 1972 letter. It's going to take me a while to get used to the idea of the Cadillac Ranch. I'll answer you by April Fool's Day. Such an irrelevant and silly proposition that I want to give it all my time and attention so I can make a casual judgment of it. This installation featuring 10 Cadillac models spanning 1949 to 1963 buried half in the ground at the same angle as the Great Pyramid of Giza has no doubt inspired much in the way of judgment. Scrolling Google, it's not hard to find visitors who've left reviews describing the place as nothing more than a junkyard filled of garbage stench and scrap metal, or an absolute waste of time and honestly, a disgrace. But I think Croc has some wise words to offer in response to such detractors. As an artist, people say, oh, it's just an old car stuck in the ground. Well, it's a piece of art. And, you know, I mean, I don't, there's some art that I don't really crave. I'm not crazy about some of the Renaissance stuff I don't really like, but I appreciate it because it's art. So that's why people should appreciate this. You don't have to like it, but appreciate it's a piece of art. Somebody came up with an idea and did something, and that's what art's all about. Whatever its intended meaning, I think the true art of Cadillac Ranch is found in its experience, which, like its younger slugbug lampoon, invites visitors to leave their own painted imprints if they feel moved to do so. Walking amongst this wreckage, surrounded by cornfields, watching couples taking pictures, spraying names on trunks, and mothers screaming at sons not to even think about climbing them. I'm reminded of when Jean-Claude and Christo filled Central Park with orange vinyl-draped gates. I thought the gates themselves were ridiculous and looked like something out of a construction site. But they drew people outdoors and inspired them to interact in the heart of the city's brutal winter. I see something similar happening here amongst people who've exited their cars and the dreariness of I-40, which is how I meet photographer and car hauler Sean Timothy. I come today from, well, I drove in from Oklahoma City via Houston, via Austin. I, I travel as a professional transporter moving cars. I live currently in Colorado Springs, Colorado. I heard about it this morning. Uh, I saw a meme of Cadillacs in the ground and I didn't know someone explained it to me. And I'm heading west so I figured I'd stop in, take some pictures because A, I'm a huge fan and proponent of street art or what I would call um, graffiti art. And this is a form of graffiti so anything to do with spray paint or, or live art really intrigues me and I thought I'd get some snaps and happy to interesting place to come you know I didn't know what I was walking into but to see everybody with paint cans it was really a kind of an interesting parallel um, and I'm seeing a lot of people out here that I wouldn't ever imagine spray painting something and uh, there was a family that spray painted their flag from their their home country uh, Syria and that was really interesting for me to see you know so I got a postcard for the Syrian family and I'm gonna print it and get it to them that feels like a really meaningful connection so knowing what I know about what's going on in Syria right now is really grounding reminder to be grateful for what we have here in the United States anywhere a community can come together in whatever um, whatever form that looks I, I feel like this provides an opportunity 
for people to come together in the name of art or or maybe the cultural heritage of it but then you have a it just puts people who wouldn't probably talk before into the same space and whether we're open to it or not you know maybe a small percentage of people are actually open to meeting a stranger but those are my people so I'm, I'm coming here to meet like-minded people I'm coming here to uh, share ideas if anyone wants to talk on that level or just share a smile and that that means something being around people especially in a polarized way country you know a concrete totem pole on a country road an enormous blue whale slug bugs and vintage Cadillacs angled in the ground like pyramids are these ideas a little wild Maybe. Then again, maybe they're just what our world needs. Thanks to all who participated in this episode. I'll be including visitor information to all sites in the show notes. I'm also pleased to report that since recording, the city of Katusa has hired a full-time park director to work at the Blue Whale, which has given Linda a bit of a respite, though she still returns as a guest often. Also, while I hope to touch on this in a future bonus... It deserves mentioning that Crocodile Lyle is perhaps most renowned for his line of wearable art called Cadillac Jewelry. The reason for that name is because his pieces are made from chunks of paint gathered at Cadillac Ranch. And believe me, if you're in Amarillo, a visit to his Lyle Art Gallery, which sits right on the route, is a must-stop. You can learn more about him and his work via the link I'm including in the show notes as well. Most of all, thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed what you've heard and haven't already, please follow us on your favorite podcast app. It helps us grow, and doing that guarantees you will never miss any content. Also, if you know someone in your life who might enjoy what we're up to, it would mean a great deal if you could just take a second to text them and share this episode. For photos and more, please find us on Instagram or vanishingpostcards.com, where you're always welcome to reach out. Our theme music was written and performed by Max Krauss and Emily Young. I'm Evan Stern, and hope you'll join us next time for more Vanishing Postcards.